0: Every little thing you think that you need, every little thing you think that you need, every little thing that's just feeding your greed, oh, I bet that you will be fine without it.
1: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we are the minimalists. Oh, you might notice a, an absence in the studio. There was an absence last week as well. Welcome back, Ryan Nicodemus. Thank you. Thank you. He was malingering last week.
2: Man, it you write that one down, Danny. It means to pretend that you're sick. <laughs> oh? <Yeah. laughs> Dude, I uh, I kept testing <laughs> negative for COVID, but like... I had a headache like it was COVID. It was, it was bad. And then Mariah got whatever I got. So for like the last two weeks, it's been sickville over in the Nicodemus household.
1: Well, TK is not sick. He's not here today. He's down in Texas. Before that, he was in Pennsylvania speaking at several middle schools and high schools about what it means to live a meaningful life with less. He'll be back on the show next week. But we do have Malabama here in the studio. Hi, everybody. we got Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Social Jess, Podcast Sean, post-production Peter all joining us today. And We're talking about, we're talking about a lot. We're going to talk about some career clutter. We're going to talk about aspiring minimalists, we're going to talk about learning to say no, and so much more. I say we dive right into it, Ryan. What do you say? Let's do it. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at minimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber, a patron, if you will. That way we can prioritize your message for a future episode. Our first question today is from Grace.
3: My name is Grace and I live in Bedford in the UK. I am 37 years old and I am an aspiring minimalist. I've decluttered the kitchen drawers, got rid of over half of my wardrobe, and I love enjoying the simple things in life, especially spending time with my fiancé and dog. Life at home is great. My work life, however, is not so easy to minimalize. I left school at 18 to be a professional dancer, I had danced my whole life and so this was a dream come true. I spent a good few years doing this until I hit my mid-twenties and decided I should become more adult, so I quit dancing and started working in retail and bought a flat at the same time. I quickly worked my way up, moved to London and became a stylist in a flagship store, then got a spot on a head office display team creating window installations for stores around the world. I loved the creative side of it, but I didn't enjoy the consumerism part of it. I think this is where minimalism had planted its seed in me. At the same time as working in retail, I had set up a market stall to make ends meet, selling scones every weekend. The scones took off and long story short, I landed a book deal. Amazing. However, over time, I couldn't keep up these two jobs, and in the end, retail won out. The scones just didn't make enough money for me to live on, so I had to put them to bed at that point. Then I randomly made friends with a burlesque performer one evening. She invited me to watch a show of hers, so I went along. I was sold. The next day, I signed up to a course and it set me on fire. My old passion for dance was reignited. I got lucky and got offered spots with established burlesque producers, which I'm still doing now, every so often. I managed to leave retail and go self-employed with the burlesque, but not for long. Venues were closing down and gigs became less frequent, so I had to find something else. In between a few scone orders and dog walking for a couple of years, I decided to go to university. I had never gone after leaving school, and so I thought, why not now? I got a spot in a top arts university, which I graduated from last summer. I loved my time there. I learned so much from filmmaking to costume making, which I now also do for burlesque performers as well as myself, and also producing. After I graduated, I got a job freelancing as a creative producer for an entertainment agency. I'm due to finish there at the end of March this year. I still do baking demos during the summer months, and I did a yoga teacher training course during lockdown, during a summer in between the first and second year at uni. So I sometimes, though now rarely, run yoga classes as well. I've been so incredibly lucky in my life with all of these opportunities and I am passionate about them all. I feel that the universe has given me gifts of which I cannot ignore and therefore not let go of. I am now stuck in not being able to choose which ones I should focus more on than others. I cannot keep them all up as I get ill quite often due to trying to balance everything and always failing at being really good at any one thing. I feel like a jack of all trades, master of none. I understand how privileged I sound with all of this and how lucky I am and have been. I know I will always be okay with finding work and so this is an issue that cannot be compared to other people's actual problems. How do I simplify career clutter and find peace in what I do for a living? We're getting married soon, hopefully this year, and if I'm even luckier and able to have a family of my own, I want to be a mother who lives by example and by sharing my values with my children." compassion, creativity, and community. I do not want to be this flustered, semi-failing, lack-of-self-belief woman who can't seem to focus.
1: So, Grace, you have a lot of career clutter that you've accumulated over the course of 37 years, and it's much like the material clutter that we often create. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you woke up one day and said, all right, I'm going to try out retail and I'm going to write a book and do this. Uh, was it sconces? Scones? S- scones. Oh, she accent. was making scones. Yeah. Okay. Delicious. Yes. And you got a book deal based on the scones and then the dancing and burlesque and you're self-employed and your dog walking and then you decided to do yoga teacher training and then you wanted to go to university. And all of those things can be awesome and realizing that you can do any of those things Grace, you are infinite. Yeah. And you, it's capable. You, you are infinite, and it is possible that you can do anything that you want to do. You just have to look inside you and figure out, what am I actually motivated to do? Because many of these things, you may be inspired by someone else, and when someone inspires you, what happens? You aspire to do the thing that they do, even though you may not have the internal motivation to actually do it. So I wouldn't let the aspiration, she even mentioned being an aspirational minimalist, I wouldn't allow the aspiration to get in the way of my own internal motivation because as soon as we do that, now we're controlled by someone else's inspiration. Someone else really wants to write a book or make scones or be a yoga teacher. And if you want to do those things, great. You can follow that motivation in that direction. And just because you do it for a period of time doesn't mean you'll want to do it in perpetuity, and that's okay as well. We don't have to continue to hold on to those things and make them part of our identity. That's identity clutter on top of the career clutter. And I Mm -hmm. think those two things are very well linked, right? Mm -hmm. I am this person. This is who I am. I'm a yoga teacher. I am an author. I am a dog walker, whatever it might be. It's funny though. I noticed with my daughter, she's Nine years old, and she started a dog walking business in our neighborhood. It's called Paul's P A W S. Uh pretty awesome walking service. That's so cool. <laughs> and she's doing it to save up money because eventually someday in the distant future, she wants to buy a horse. <laughs> that's that's so cool. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it really is. The 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 weird thing is where we live in Ohio, the animal shelter has horses in addition to dogs and cats and lizards and oh, sheep wow. and other things. And You can buy a horse for like 200 bucks there, but she doesn't realize that beyond that, you also have to pay to take care of it and feed it and all the time and attention that goes into it Mm -hmm. as well. Why am I bringing this up? Because with grace, yes, buying the horse or getting the career that you want might sound good, but are you also motivated to do all of the things beneath the surface to take care of the horse or to perpetuate the career in a way that is continuing to be satisfying and fulfilling for you? Because if you're not, and you're simply following someone else's path, I'm inspired by someone else. I'm inspired by that yoga teacher. Okay, great. But if you don't want to be a yoga teacher, now all of a sudden, needing to be the yoga teacher will control you. We're going to talk about this a little bit later on the private podcast, Ryan. A man who needs nothing cannot be controlled. Mm. Because if you need money well, then now you're controlled by money and the means to make the money. If you need love, well, now you're controlled by the people whom you believe can dispense love Mm. to you. If you need a possession, that possession becomes a prison. And I would even take this farther and say, if you want these things deeply, they begin to control you. That's not a bad thing morally. I want to be clear about that. In fact, if you have a deep, compelling desire to do something, whatever it is out of all of these things you've tried, or maybe even something else that you are considering trying, if you have a deep, compelling desire, it will control you. And that's okay. You can let it control you. For me, writing has been the thing that controls me. I have a deep, compelling desire, and it controls me. It tells me to get up early every morning and sit in the chair for at least an hour a day, and I talk to my how to write better writing students about this. But if they're not compelled to write, then certainly I wouldn't say, well, you still have to do the writing. No, if there's something that is a deep compulsion that you're willing to devote yourself to, that can be beautiful. But if it controls you to the extent that it makes you miserable, then it's someone else's dream that is controlling you. One last thing I'll I'll say here, Ryan. She said, I don't know which ones to choose. Mm. And that presupposes you should pick of the 15 things you want to do, just pick half of them. So I'll, I'll pick seven, you know, I'll pick eight, you mm. know, just because I really like these eight. And then I'll do all eight of these things really poorly and wonder why I'm not getting anywhere with them, right? Mm-hmm. And I found in my own life, the thing to do with career clutter is to what? Simplify, to let go. In fact, if you name those 15 things that you find to be mildly compelling and then you rank order them, and sometimes you're just gonna have to guess. I don't know, I really like these two things. I don't know, number one, number two, they're interchangeable, wonderful. But if you rank order them, and you have the top 15, pick that bottom 14, lock them in a drawer somewhere, and say, no, 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 because unless that first thing is a hell yeah for you, then you're just gonna have a bunch of lukewarm yeses yes to this, yes to this, yes to this, yes to this. And you're going to end up not being satisfied by any of those things. It's like whenever I go to a tapas restaurant. <laughs> I just, I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. And the truth is, yes, I can fill up on those things. But imagine if I just brought you a crumb of each item. Are you going to feel satisfied? Are you going to feel full, fulfilled? No, of course not. It doesn't mean you can't approach those things later in the future, but until the one thing becomes a hell yes, it becomes the priority. Not priorities, there's no such thing as priorities. Priority means the first thing. Whatever is the priority, that is the hell yes for you. And everything else isn't just a no, Grace. It's a
2: hell no. Mm. Yeah, man, Um. Yeah, Grace is out here living life, getting all the flavors. I love we talked about her being infinite Um, because, yeah, she can do anything she wants. And man, she is, uh, you know, kind of uh, blessed, lucky, fortunate, whatever you want to call it, to have all of these different passions or these these different interests, because a lot of people, um, it's hard for them to find one thing that kind of motivates them. You know, there's no right answer here, right? Like, Grace, if she wants to continue to do all these 15 things, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Um, also I want to say there's nothing wrong with how you feel, Grace. You know, it's, you, you can't help how you feel. You're allowed to feel however you feel. It doesn't make you wrong. Cause I used to beat myself up in the corporate world when I was miserable and I'm like, oh, I'm so ungrateful. I just take all this for granted. People would kill to be in this position. And here I am complaining about it. And, uh, yeah, it took me a while to realize like, Hey, it's, it's okay to not be happy with something even though someone is looking at your life saying, well, you should be happy because you know you have what I have. So mm-hmm. don't put yourself up there, Grace. Man, I, I, I like the list idea. Um, the other thing too is you could just like write these on little pieces of paper, put them in a bucket mm-hmm. and you go to pick one. But like as soon as you go to pick one, usually there is a overwhelming desire for one particular thing to be on that piece of paper when you look at it. And that's yeah. that's kind of the hell yes. That would That would be the way to, I don't know, kind of start sorting through these. The... The thing that I would two things I would I would uh do if I was in Grace's shoes here, I would first off, I would get really, really clear on what my values are. And uh you can do that with our values worksheet, uh the forward slash V as at, in values. As in values. And uh w- what this does, even if you just fill out the foundational values, what it does is it will help guide these different interests because Regardless of your interests, uh, if you're doing something that takes away or dismisses one of these foundational values, let alone the structural values and the surface values, um, then then that's where I would would be cautious. Mm -hmm. Because I know, like with the corporate world, you know, 5% of it, 10% of it was managing people and like really helping people get better at their job. And I love that. But ninety percent of it was soul crushing. Mm. So, um, yeah, start with your start with your values, uh, and then the other thing too is you know you talk about the horse, and the values will help you get to this. But what's your horse, Grace? Yeah, like what are you working for? Right. Like what is your ultimate end goal? If it's to make money, which I think that is uh, probably not the right goal. It's probably not good to put money in the driver's seat. It's certainly in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's money, then, okay, just go for what's going to make you the most money.
4: Yeah.
2: If it's, uh, you know, contentment, if it's, uh, making room for hobbies, then, uh, then, 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 you know, move towards that. But Grace, you've got to get clear on what you want, what that horse is for you. And to get clear on that, you got to start with, you got to start with your values. Um, Grace, you get a lot of hobbies. It's cool. It's not a big deal. Maybe, yeah. you know, if, if there's one thing that you can do that is really paying the bills and giving you the freedom to do these other hobbies, then that's, yeah, that's an option. I, I mean, I snowboard, I mountain bike, I longboard. I haven't wakeboarded in a long time. I haven't waterboarded ever. <laughs> 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 that one time in college. Right, right. Oh my gosh. Um, but, you know, I have these hobbies that I probably do, you know, a handful of times a year. Um, and that's okay. I don't, I don't take on any more hobbies because I don't have room for any more, um, hobby accoutrement, (laughs) but it's okay to have hobbies, Grace. You got a good problem. So yeah, don't beat yourself up, figure out what that horse is, get clear in your values. Um,
1: I I think that'll help guide you. I want to get clear about the problem though, because I think you're bringing up a really great point, Ryan. Because there are a couple things, a couple directions I can go. First off, I'll say that values worksheet that Ryan mentioned, it's free. You can download it for free and you can get clear on what your different types of values are, what drives you, what compels you. And from that, you can decide what you want to become devoted to. There was an exercise you mentioned about putting those 15 items into a bucket or a hat and just drawing out one and saying before you even pull it out, oh, what's the one I hope for? Mm-hmm. If that's not clear to you, one thing that's worked well for me is, as soon as I reach in there, I hope I don't pull this one out. Ooh, Ooh you
2: can start crossing yeah. stuff off.
1: Yeah, yeah, that way you know like, ah, yes, I know I could be a yoga teacher, but it's not actually for me. And you can cross them off before even pulling them out at that point. yeah, what What is your heart telling you in that moment? Yes. And, Grace, it seems to me like you've gotten pretty clear about your gratitude. You've even said that, well, I know this sounds like an incredibly privileged problem. As our friend T.K. Coleman would say, your privilege is irrelevant in an in instance like this. Because, problems are problems. Yes. Feelings yeah. are feelings. Yeah. And, and so, yes, you have a problem here, as Ryan illuminated having a bunch of hobbies is not a problem. However, it's a problem for Grace because they're stressing her out Mm -hmm. and she feels listless, directionless, and she wants to regain some of that direction. And the way you do that is by getting hyper, hyper focused. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you that you should do that, but I know the way to find the direction in which I want to travel Mm. is simply focusing on the thing that is most compelling. And everything else sort of falls by the wayside. Doesn't mean you can't pick them back up, but you're going to have to set a few things down
2: to eliminate that career clutter that's getting in the way. Yeah, I I love where you're talking about uh, the compelling aspect of it here, like doing something that you can't not do. Like, you know, when it comes to passion, we always talk about, um, what's my passion? Hey, what's your passion? Uh, I want to have a passion. I can't find my passion. Like it's this ownership thing. And, you know, you can't possess a passion, but a passion can possess you. So the question is, is which of those hobbies possess you?
1: Yes. Yeah. And She said she feels
2: really lucky. That's a position of gratitude.
4: Mm.
1: Tap into that luck. What do you feel most lucky about? Oh, because when I feel really lucky, I feel what? Carefree. I feel Light. I feel joyous. I feel overwhelmed with gratitude, not prescriptively, because it's not about you just need to be grateful, Grace. Mm -hmm. No, you already have that gratitude. Let's uncover it together. I want to send you a copy, Grace, of our book, Everything That Remains. Ryan and I wrote this book almost a decade ago now, Ryan. And it was really about walking away from a bunch of things that were yeses, but they weren't hell yeses for us. They were lukewarm yeses. They're like, ah, I guess I'll try that out. And we decided, mm, I need to set some of those down. I need to make room for hell yeah. So I'm gonna send you a copy of Everything That Remains. If you like our podcast, you'll enjoy the audio book version of that. Or if you want the book book or the e-book version, we'll send those to you as well. Our next question is from Jenny.
5: Hi, this is Jenny from Columbus, Missouri. I'm wondering how you would respond to a friend or family member who tries to sell you on an item that you've told them that you don't need. For instance, my home does actually have plenty of extra storage space. I just see no reason to fill it with unwanted items. So often when I tell a family member I don't need something, they'll come back and say something along the lines of, but you have plenty of available storage space. Maybe you'll need this in the future. My no thank you ends up feeling like a broken record. This family member usually ends up responding in a hurtful way or making it seem like I'm ungrateful for not wanting their castoffs. How should I deal with this situation? I've tried everything.
1: We were talking about this earlier, Ryan, but as soon as you need something, it begins to control you. Mm-hmm. If you need the approval of your friends and family, if you need the people in your life to have the same preferences or ideas around their material possessions, then you will need to conform to their ideas and ideology of what is appropriate. And what you're realizing, the tension that you're expressing in your life right now is, oh, I'm not completely compatible with the people in my life. And that's okay. My preferences aren't their preferences. But as soon as you realize that, you realize that their reaction is also an emotional reaction because they're reacting in judgment. What is judgment? Judgment simply means I don't like something the way that it is. It is the opposite of accepting. And what you're telling me, Grace, is your friends are having trouble accepting you for who you are. And so your friends, in a way, are having trouble loving you. Now, we often think love is, well, we think codependency is love. Mm. We think trauma bonding Is love. So trauma bonding basically means we both have shared traumas, or I have some sort of trauma in my life, and then I'm going to get someone to fulfill that hole, that void that is in my own life to try to compensate for my own trauma. Well, recognizing having compassion for the people around you, recognizing I'm not the only one with the trauma, they also have trauma. And maybe one of the ways they deal with that trauma is, but they're trying to contribute to you, Jenny. They're trying to say, hey, I want you to have this, not realizing what is triggering them to force their rightness, their things, their judgment onto you. Because what's happening now is your friends are inadvertently, and your family, are inadvertently placing themselves on a pedestal because they're saying, I have the right idea of what would work for you. And what you're simply saying is, no, that doesn't work for me. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. I'm not saying it doesn't work for you either. I'm simply saying that doesn't work for me. I'd like to present a fairly hysterical or hyperbolic example around this. If you had a family member who walked up to your house and they gave you a bag of dog poop and said, you ha- have plenty of room for this (laughs) here, Ryan, you take care of this. (laughs) (laughs) Not only would you say no, because no is a complete sentence. Jenny, no, no, no. You would say hell no to it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's going to stink up my house. Mm -hmm. Well, it's easy for you to understand that the dog poop is going to stink up your house. But these other things are going to stink up your life in various ways. Clutter is going to stink up your life. Excess material possessions will stink up your life. But also your family and friends' expectations. If you need to conform to them, they control you. And that control will also stink up your life. And so how do you regain control? You simply say no. And when no doesn't work, you find another way to say no. But it's important that if you've identified a boundary, then sticking to that boundary is the only way the boundary
2: stays a boundary. I'm just imagining like her family member giving her something, and she's like, you might as well have handed me a a bag of dog poop. (laughs) Um, I would not recommend saying that, Jenny. Oh, a couple things, you know... um, Jenny, anytime I have to say no to something that I'm uncomfortable saying no to, meaning that I'm scared I'm going to hurt someone else's feelings, I try to be as compassionate as possible. You know, if your if you're, if you're no comes from a place of how dare you, like that's going to come out. If that's your context, then that's going to come out and it is going to create some tension. But if your no is coming from a place of, man, I really appreciate you looking out for me, but um, that's just not something that I need in my life, but thank you so much for trying to contribute to me, which is exactly what they're trying to do. Like you've got family, friends, whatever, trying to give you things because they want to make your life better in some way. So for me, if I had a persistent family member trying to always give me things, I would go out of my way to, I don't know, show them how I see them showing up in my life and supporting me. Mm. Because that's really what that family member wants to do. And, you know, we talk about the love languages and gift, gift giving is like one of these love languages. And we've talked, you know, plenty about how that's probably not true. Uh, It's more of the contribution aspect of it. But this is this person trying to show you their love by giving you a gift. And maybe they're not doing it in a way that you prefer. Um, That's okay. Just show them how you do receive their love in, in various ways. And uh I, I don't know, that makes that makes the know a lot easier. But coming from a place of compassion and and like seeing that person, respecting that person, um, really showing that person that you understand them, mm-hmm. that that is how you can deliver uncomfortable news uh, to someone. And it's also not loving to keep saying yes to these people right? as well. Because
1: saying yes to them when you're saying no to your values, to your own mental health. You're saying no to your own serenity, your calm, your peace. You don't realize you're doing that because ah, it's just one little yes. I'll take that on. Yes, yes, yes. What you're really doing is you're saying no to your boundaries that you've set up. Mm -hmm. And when you say no to boundaries and then the boundaries recede, they recede, and then you have fewer and fewer boundary, what happens is you get trampled. And it doesn't mean the people are trying to trample you. You have compassion and understanding for them that, they want to show their love and they're doing so in the best way that they can. However, instead of dog poop, if someone just showed up at your doorstep with an actual puppy, how would you say no to that? You would say no to it, I suspect, Mm -hmm. right? And it'd be easier for you to say, hey, I can't take care of that thing. I don't have the resources, the time, the attention, the energy. I don't have room in my calendar to take care of that thing. But also, I don't have the desire to take care of a pet. It doesn't mean I think it's bad or wrong, but reacting in that way, not, oh, my God, how would, why would you do this? Mm -hmm. I can't believe that you would bring this over to my house. How inconsiderate are you? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an emotional reaction, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't have to have an emotional reaction. You can have a curious reaction to all of this. Mm -hmm. You can stop and say, hey, it's really fascinating that you would think I would want a dog and Although I don't, I'm really curious. Maybe you can help me understand. And it's so much better than, oh my God, I can't believe you did this. How dare you blame, 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 blame. No, let me take some ownership here. Clearly, I haven't done a great job of showing them my boundary. And that can change right now. Mm -hmm. And maybe I have shown the boundary, but they simply don't understand that boundary yet. So I need to show them the boundary
2: in a different way. Yeah, it's really about showing them You know, you're saying no, so you can say yes to something else. And if you can help them see what you're saying yes to, um, then yeah, they they are more likely to support you for sure.
1: Let's move on to another question we have here from Ben.
6: This is Ben from Hamburg, Germany. I'm a patron subscriber and I really love to support your podcast and I appreciate you for all that you do. I saw that JFM and um, Ryan wear an aura ring. And I was wondering, what is your take on measuring your biodata and behavioral data and being measured throughout the day? On the one hand, I think it's quite um, interesting and fascinating. And on the other hand, you... Uh, generate a lot of data and are confronted with new, maybe insights or also false measurements of yourself. I would love to hear you guys discuss this. Well,
1: I'll say this, Ryan. We measure each other all the time. (laughs) (laughs) We sure do, don't we? Mm -hmm. Isn't that funny how we do go around, measurement is a, a nice way a more precise way of saying comparing, yeah, right? yeah, And yet we compare ourselves against other people. Oh, if I just had this car, I would be better. So I'm comparing my past self with my present self, with my future self. And we're taking all of these different measurements, trying to quantify something that can't be quantified. We are mm. quantifying contentment or peace. And I don't have 17 units of peace today. <laughs> and then I've used up all my peace units and I need to acquire more of them. That's not how tranquility or contentment work. And yet, we still measure. However, I will say this about measurement, because back in our corporate days, Ryan, we used to measure a lot of metrics. Oh, yeah. And many of them, as Ben pointed out, they were sort of false measurements. Mm. They didn't really indicate the health or wellness of the organization. Uh, In fact, on a daily basis, we were responsible for 29 different metrics that we reported throughout the day. We had 3 p.m. updates, 7 p.m. updates, end of day updates. Mm -hmm. We were bombarded by measurements. And what I'll tell you, Ben, is you can't get the right answer by measuring the wrong things. And I don't mean right or wrong morally. I mean, preferential. The reason I wear an Aura ring, it has a, it's a basically a sleep tracker and activity tracker, and I'm not endorsing it. I know that Fitbit does something similar. There's a something called the Whoop uh, strap that does something similar. Apple Watch does something similar. And I think your iPhone or even Android phone can do something similar as well. And so his question is, essentially, do you get bombarded by these measurements? And you certainly could. Mm-hmm. I didn't look at my Aura ring data today. Because I don't look at it daily. I tend to look at it once a week and I look at patterns. I'll review it with my doctor as well because he's, the reason I'll review it is he's better at looking at the measurements than me. Oh, wow. He'll log into my account and he'll say, huh, over the last year, here's the pattern that I am seeing. So patterns are much more important than one little spike. And that's what was so maddening about what we did in the corporate world, Ryan, 3 p.m. update. Oh, my God, Ryan. Your store in Middletown, Ohio, only has two Spinvox sales. Oh, my God. And and now it's like, hey, what's going on? Why don't you have at least four? And it's, well, and even if you had 17 at 3 p.m., it doesn't mean that you had any throughout the rest of the month, quarter, year, etc. Mm-hmm. And so one little spike, and it could be a, a huge zenith of, I had a great sleep last night, or a giant nadir. Oh, my God, my sleep was terrible last night. It's not really an indicator of your overall well-being. What happens from these patterns that you pick up is you learn what affects you negatively and what doesn't. I'll give you two examples. One is my wife, after wearing the ring for over a year, she realized she couldn't do caffeine at all anymore. Uh Not even in the morning. So she would make these little adjustments, these little experiments where she would get down to half a cup and then she was doing half-calf and... And eventually she said, I can't do any caffeine because as soon as I remove it, here are the indicators that improve over a protracted period of time. Mm. She gets longer sleep. She falls to sleep quicker. So the latency of sleep, she gets much more deep sleep. With me, I'm almost the exact opposite. Whereas if I stop doing coffee, my sleep tanks. In fact, If I want to improve my own sleep, I'll have a few sips of coffee in the evening before going to bed. Why that is, I don't know. I know I metabolize caffeine more quickly. Mm. I have the gene for that. I did a 23andMe, and and so I metabolize caffeine quicker, and Bex is the opposite. She metabolizes caffeine really, really slowly, Mm. and that's detrimental for her. However, you know what else was detrimental for her? was continuing to wear the ring after she got everything she wanted out of it. Just a few months ago, she ceased wearing the ring because she realized that she was neurosing over the data. And as soon as you begin neurosing over it, it actually does the opposite. Wearing the ring then makes us worry about our sleep in a way that we wouldn't have worried otherwise. And so what I'll say is for a period of time, those measurements were really helpful for her. She adjusted some things in her diet. She started fasting differently. She wasn't. She stopped doing intermittent fasting, but she also stopped eating later at night. She found that if she ate within the last two hours, it would negatively affect her sleep. She found certain supplements negatively affected her sleep and other supplements like GABA or 5-HTP or melatonin helped her sleep in a way. Mm. And so, Those measurements were useful for a reason. But once you get what you want out of the data, the data becomes far less useful going forward because you figured out what you want from it. And then continuing to measure can actually be a detriment. It's been said that, and they said this all the time in the corporate world with us, Ryan, you can't manage what you don't measure. Mm -hmm. And it's nonsense Mm -hmm. because you don't have to measure anything to know how you feel. And if you feel like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep last night, it doesn't matter what your ring says to you. You didn't get enough sleep last night. And let's say your ring says, oh, nope, your sleep score is 96, Ryan. You'd be like, well, it's just wrong. You're not going to all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, you know what? I lied to myself. I actually feel great. Mm. And so how do you feel? And if the measurements help you quantify how you feel so you can figure out how you got there, wonderful. Otherwise, they... They become another form of clutter.
2: Yeah. Um, out of those twenty nine metrics that we used to measure, what was the most ridiculous that you can remember?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: For me, it was like the the text messaging attach rate. <laughs> yes. Like what percentage <laughs> of your cell phone activations had text messaging attached to it? Because now, like pretty much every cell phone plan comes with text automatically. But it's all a castle of sand, anyway, right? Yeah. Because
1: all the things that are measured, that company's not even in business anymore. They were purchased by a larger telecom company. Yeah. And so all those stores are gone. And then and you start to realize like, oh, it's castles of sand all the way down. Yeah. It's castles of sand built on top of <laughs> castles of sand. And we pretend there's some sort of permanence here. And so that data could be useful to point us in the direction. But you can also get mm. paralyzed. When you start measuring 29 different metrics and paying attention to all of them, you actually stop paying attention to the things that matter most to you. Yeah, The one thing I pay most attention to on this, there are two things, one with sleep, one with activity. The one sleep thing that I pay most attention to is deep sleep. Mm. And if I'm getting an hour plus of deep sleep a night. So that is useful. On average, am I getting an hour plus, right? Yeah. Because that tends to work well for me. That's when I feel best. If Jenna, if I'm getting 90 minutes or more of deep sleep, that's when I feel outstanding. Yeah. The other thing that I look at is it's an activity tracker, and it will let me know, like, hey, it's time to get up, or it's time to move, or hey, do you think that you should stretch your legs a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the the answer to any of these th- things is it's a it's a notifier. It, it, it notifies me that, oh, yeah, my activity this week has been less than what I wanted.
2: Yeah, it's a tool. How are mm-hmm. you using that tool? A tool is as useful as its user. I'll tell you, there, there is a placebo thing, though, with the OR ring. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while there, this was a couple of years ago, I stopped wearing it because I started to neurose over my sleep score when I was going to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I would get stressed out about not having a good sleep score. Yeah. So then I was worried about, you know, not having a, a good readiness score the next day. And yeah, it was to the point where I literally would keep myself awake at night getting worried about it. So I stopped wearing the ring and I did start to fall asleep a little bit easier and um, didn't arose about it. So it can be uh, to a detriment, but I, I do love the data that it gives me with the deep sleep with anything else. Cause yes, I've learned a lot about my eating habits, caffeine intake, um, yeah, just different things that I probably wouldn't have. I mean, we all know eating right before bed probably isn't a good thing, but like the data like clearly shows you like, you know, you know, kind of what your window is. It just gives you a little bit more precise on these things that regardless like if you were to ask me how to get better sleep i'd be like i right, drink less caffeine mm-hmm. don't drink alcohol before six hours uh, you know at least six hours before bed don't eat before bed there's all these things that we know but the data kind of just hones it in a little bit more um so yeah i i, I like the aura ring but yeah i'm totally open to letting it go in fact my aura ring is now a pinky ring be- oh because my fancy i, I know right <laughs> Am it's, I a pinky ring type of guy? It's diamond but, studded, am too. Am I a pinky ring ty- type of guy? I don't think so. <laughs> if you're
1: watching the video version, it's just encrusted with uh, tens of thousands of dollars of diamonds.
4: <laughs> it's blinding,
1: Only 10000 right, right on the money. Oh, yeah. um, What's the little Wayne line? Pinky ring costs about fifty. Come on. Come on, Danny. You don't know about
7: that. Danny's shaking his head. You were did,
2: three when he said that. I'm worried. I don't know. I like looked it up about... Um, you know, your, your knuckles getting bigger uh-huh. and all I could find was arthritis stuff. Like my hands don't hurt, but for some reason, like my knuckles have gotten a little bit bigger. So now it fits on my pinky and that's about it. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, uh, the aura Ring, I like it. I use it. Um, but certainly it could be a tool that um, a- affects you negatively if you're using it the wrong way.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Let's move on to some social media questions, y'all. Looks like we got a question here from Savannah.
7: You recently said, to worry is to pray for something bad to happen. But I have to disagree. When you're worrying about something, you're praying something bad won't happen. Doesn't that kind of thinking give the middle finger to people with anxiety disorders?
1: I stand corrected. Well, next question. (laughs) Savannah, I totally get what you're saying. And uh, I have a lot of people in my life who also take things very literally. And... I would encourage you to listen to the essence of what I was trying to say. When I say to worry is to pray for something bad to happen, I don't mean that you should pray for bad things to happen. But what is true here? Whether something bad happens or something good happens, your worry is a waste of life. And the same thing is true with these other things that we consider to be virtuous, whether it's wishing for something or having an expectation about something. Whether or not the thing happens, it happens, right? But the worry is now punishing myself right now for something in the future that might happen. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't worry. I'm simply I'm simply acknowledging that when I worry personally, it is not serving me in the moment. Now, it's okay to be concerned about something. If, I'm concer- if I see concern and it forces me to change in some distinct way, it can be something as simple as, oh, I see an accident up there on the highway. I guess I should slow down. I'm not worrying that I'm going to get into a crash. I'm not neurosing over it. I'm not picking up that concern and carrying it with me. That concern might say, hey, there's something I need to change here. And it's okay to go ahead and change it. Mm. And so, yes, to worry is to pray for something bad to happen. And I also understand that Savannah is praying for something bad not to happen. Mm -hmm. But also in doing so, the worrying about it, something bad is actually happening. Not morally bad, but something unpleasant in the moment. You are experiencing this unpleasantness for something that hasn't even happened yet. And as soon as you realize that, you begin to understand the, to, you to understand the worry. You begin to understand that worry is a folly. The mm-hmm. folly of the worry. And how, no matter how much I worry, it's not actually going to change the outcome. And as soon as you see the absurdity of the worry, what I've noticed in my own life is the worry starts to drop. This isn't productive accept the things that I cannot change and give me the courage to change the things I can. That's where the concern comes in. But I will drop the worry if I can't change it because there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Folliedworry.com.
2: <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's, I totally get the essence of what Savannah is saying here. Um, but you know, with any of these negative emotions, worry, anxiety, uh, jealousy, envy, like anything that pop up, pops up in your, in your mind and, and gives you that, that anxiety. Um, that's a symptom. So the question is, is what is that a symptom of? And then once you figure out what what it is a symptom of, then it goes to the serenity prayer. Can I do something about it? And if you can't do anything about it, then worrying is, it's, it's a, it's, it's a fruitless endeavor. You're just worrying to, for the sake of worrying. And I don't know what it is. Cause I do this too. Like I have really bad anxiety and there's like this anxiety will arise within me and it, nothing triggers it. Well, I mean, maybe coffee or, you know, whatever, like there are maybe some, you know, some things that'll trigger it, but, but I don't have like an exact thing in my mind that I'm feeling anxious over. But as soon as that anxiety arises within me, it's very hard to not start looking for things to make me anxious Because my mind says, oh, that anxiety is a symptom of something. What's it a symptom of? And then I start finding these things to neurose over. And I'm getting better and better at kind of dropping that anxiety and just, you know, breathing and saying, you know, hey, man, like, this is just a little weird chemical imbalance going on with you right now. And uh, don't sit here and try to find something to to neurose over because I guarantee if I uh, would allow myself to think long enough, I would find something to neurose over. And uh, what's the saying? If you if you worry about something bad happening and then it happens to you... Mm-hmm. You th- punish yourself twice. You punish yourself twice. Yeah. 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 And, I, you know, it's fascinating with
1: the whole acceptance thing, Ryan, because you're saying, is there anything I can do about this? Mm-hmm. Is what you just said.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And often our response to that is, yes, I can worry about it. That's not doing anything, though. <laughs> right. right. And so we often mistake worrying about something as though we're doing something about it. Yeah. But worrying is the opposite of doing something about it, right? Because let's take an example here. If this room caught on fire right now, you're going to be pretty displeased with this room, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not really going to worry about the fire. I'm going to do something. I'm either going to... If, It's possible to extinguish the fire. I'm going to try to extinguish it. I'm going to run out of the room. I'm going to save whoever I need to save during the process. I'm not going to worry about it, though. Worry comes from rumination, from thinking. Mm. What's the opposite of that? Actually doing something when that something is within my control. We have another question here from Katie.
7: We all know miserable people who have obtained many expensive objects. If it's clear that the objects didn't make them happy... Why do we keep trying to be like them?
1: Well, consumerism is a wallpaper. Mm. We think it covers our discontent, but it actually papers over our contentment. So what happens, Ryan, you're familiar with wallpaper. You were in the wallpaper business once upon a time. Yes, it's coming back. (laughs) And in order to put up wallpaper, you have to take down the old wallpaper generally, right? Mm
4: -hmm.
1: Yeah. Because if you don't, what happens? Yeah. It won't stick to the walls. Yeah. yeah. If you don't prep it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so when you are getting ready to paper over something, you have to get it down to its essence. Mm. But that's not what we do with consumerism. Consumerism is the ideology that buying things is going to make me happy or complete. And what happens, we buy that wallpaper, whatever it is, the new car, the new furniture, the new blender. We buy the new home in the new neighborhood. We buy the new duvet cover. We buy the new espresso maker. We buy the new mirror in the new bathroom. We buy the new cosmetics and the new t-shirt and the new jeans and the new shoes. We buy all these new things to paper over our discontent. But what happens is that discontent is still there. That dissatisfaction is still there inside us. And all we've done is cover it up. Mm. And the only way to let go of that dissatisfaction is not to cover it up even more with more wallpaper. It's to see it for what it is, to remove that excess so the discontent can escape. Because anytime we're feeling that discontent, it's because we're under the control of something. Earlier, we were talking about control and how if I need something, it controls me. If I need a new car, I'm now controlled by the car and the car payment and the car maintenance and the fuel and everything associated with the car. If I need a relationship, now I'm being controlled by the love and the connection. And it really turns into codependency. That's not love. I'm being controlled by someone else, my need for love, which isn't love at all. If I need a new home or I need a new shirt or I need any sort of new accoutrement, that thing is now controlling me. Mm -hmm. And so when I get back to Katie's question specifically, it's clear the objects don't make them happy. No, it's not clear because you see the smiling pictures and advertisements and on Instagram of someone next to their nice new car and celebrating their new purchase celebrating their shopping trip to the mall celebrating their unboxing experience I got this thing look how smiley I am yes it did make you happy for a moment but it also covered up all that discontent that's inside you yeah. and that little burst of pleasure is never going to get rid of the discontent yeah and so it's papering over your contentment and the only thing to do is to shed anything that's getting in the way
2: yeah, I like this example of wallpaper. It makes me think of surface values, which is that third level of values that we talk about on the worksheet. And these, these surface values are preferences, really. It's like things that you definitely don't need to make you happy, but they augment your life. They, they, they serve a purpose or they bring joy. Um, you know, you're big on aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So when you get a couch, you're very deliberate with the couch that you bring in. I mean, you and Bex do a really good job of just making sure that everything that you're bringing into your home has this aesthetic beauty to it. And I think that's wonderful. I think that, you know, it's really cool that you can pay that close of attention to detail. And that's what wallpaper is. It's an aesthetic thing. So if you have a bathroom and you want to wallpaper it, great, that's fine. But the bathroom is still functional and will serve the purpose that you need it to with or without the wallpaper. The problem is that if you buy the wallpaper and you put it on there and you don't do it deliberately and it's not bringing you joy or happiness or it's not giving you the feeling, the dopamine hit that you hoped that it would give you every time you walked in that bathroom, you get more wallpaper and put it up. And if you're putting layers and layers of wallpaper up, then yes, eventually it's just gonna all come tumbling down. So, you know, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with wallpaper. The problem is, is yeah, when you start Needing it, as you said, I love that quote. Did, so I was going to ask you: Is that um, who's that a quote from? The man who needs nothing cannot be controlled. Yeah, I just came up with it. That's but. good, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's you. That's a, that's a JFM original. Yeah, I don't know.
1: I uh, anytime I say something that seems remotely profound, I'm sure there's some a million sure. iterations out there, and so we, we borrow things all the time. Like, love people use things as derivative of uh, the Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom had a little poster, it was similar, that said, like, you must remember to love people and use things rather than to love things and use people. Mm-hmm. And then 90 years later, Drake had a line, in his 2013 song, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the song, mm-hmm. but it was essentially a repurposing of that. And I sort of took the two and remixed the two together Yeah. and then came up with Love People Use Things, which was originally just a little throwaway line. It was inside the copyright page of Everything That Remains, our mm-hmm. second book. And Ryan was like, hey, when we're out on tour, you should start ending the events with this little line. Because I said it once as a someone asked, like, what do you want us to get out of this? And I'm like, I guess love people use things because the opposite never works. And like everyone sort of lit up. And Ryan was mm-hmm. like, hey, let's try using this at the end of each event. And then it ended our first film. And now it ends our podcast as well. And so there's something about these little nuggets of profundity that we can reinterpret, rework into our own lives. Mm-hmm. Because the man who needs nothing cannot be controlled by anybody. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you aren't controlled by your need for food or oxygen or, or shelter or whatever. Mm-hmm. But think about this for a second, Ryan. The freest people in the world are ascetics. There's someone living somewhere high up in the Himalayas who has not been controlled, has total freedom, because they don't need anything. Now, someone will take that as a prescription. Well, I think you should not need anything now. I'm not saying that. Yeah, You're going to need some stuff if you're listening to this. But the more
2: you need, the more you will be controlled. Yeah. Now, I love what we, what we also say about the willingness to walk away and how that is a superpower. Like being able to let go of anything like that, that is freedom. And when I think about really, really rich people that I've met and and some I've come to know, um, the happiest ones, they're happy with or without the money, like the money's there and they can do things with it and they can, you know, uh, yeah, do whatever they want. Right. It gives them more, it gives them more freedom financially, but they could genuinely walk away from it all and they would still find contentment and happiness because they are happy with themselves. And like, that is, that's really where, um, I don't know, that's, that's, it's a hard place to get to, but that, that is where true contentment lies. And I'm using contentment instead of happiness because happiness is an extreme emotion. Mm-hmm. And I'm like a firm believer, like the older and older I get with the whole Buddhist, you know, proverb of, um, you don't want to be happy or sad. You just want to, you got to go the middle road. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm totally paraphrasing what the proverb is, but, but yeah, that middle road is the, the more, um, the more, satis- more satisfying road. Because if you're constantly chasing happiness, then you're really chasing dopamine hits and uh, you can never get enough. You'll never get enough dopamine. That's right. Yeah. And you'll need
1: more and more and more and more. And that's what consumer I- that's right. what consumerism is. Needing more and more and more, no matter what, give me more. And it's more wallpaper on top of my discontent and also on top of my contentment. And so, yes, more things, more things, more things. Give me more stuff. Mm. Give me more accolades. Give me more applause. Give me more space, more room. Give me more. I always need more. That controls me. Mm -hmm. We're controlled by the desire for more. Not even thinking what that might do for me. What outcome am I actually going for here? Nothing wrong with owning A 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 square foot home. What are you using it for? What do you need that for? Because if you need it, that home's going to control you. And the more it controls you, the less freedom you have. The less freedom you have, the more discontent you are going to feel. The more discontent you feel, you try to paper over it more with more stuff. And Mm. it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. The acquisition of more doesn't make us more happy. It makes us less content. We have another question
7: from Twitter. This one comes from SM. Digital clutter is harder for me to declutter than physical clutter. What are some ways we can begin decluttering our devices?
1: Well, we often ask, how might your life be better with less, right? It started our last film on Netflix. How might your life be better with less? So I would ask you this. How might your life be better with less digital clutter? How might your phone, your computer, your devices be better with less? Generally, it has nothing to do with your phone, with your computer, with your digital clutter. Those things aren't the problem. The problem is you're discontented with the clutter. Otherwise, it wouldn't even be clutter. It'd be useful for you, or it would be neutral. It wouldn't bother you. And how do I know? Because SM, I suspect that the clutter that's on my computer, if there was any, wouldn't bother you at all. In fact, if I amassed a bunch of clutter onto my computer and my phone, and I went out and bought an iPad and put a bunch of clutter, digital clutter on that, it's not going to bother you at all. It bothers you because it gets in your way. And that's why it is a problem for you. Your digital clutter is a bigger problem for you than your physical clutter because it's easier to hide. Out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm -hmm. Your devices become a giant junk drawer. A repository for antiquated, obsolete, digital files, nonsense that will no longer serve a purpose for you. Now, you can archive those things, retire them to a hard drive or some distant corner of your computer where you never have to fool with them but still have access to them. That's what I tend to do because it's just like the internet. I'm never going to get to the end of the internet, but I'll hold on to certain things. I've put on Dropbox so it's backed up for me that I know I may want to access someday in the future just for when, not just in case, just for when setting those aside. So for me, digital clutter is way less problematic because it doesn't actually get in my way. It's easier for me to dispense of. There's no true waste going on here that I'm gonna be filling a landfill with. When I drag an item to the trash can on my computer, it doesn't actually go to a landfill. It just disappears, right? And so the question ultimately goes back to, how might your life improve? Not by
2: acquiring, but by letting go of some of this clutter. Yeah, and when you get clear on that why, then it becomes a little easier to set up boundaries for yourself. There's the no duplicate rule, no duplicate pictures. Like that's, that's that. I mean, even if you snap four pictures and you're like, okay, this is the one I like. I mean, I do that all the time where I'll snap four and then I delete three of them right away. Because I know that if I don't, I probably am not going to get around to it uh, to go back and and filter through those duplicates. Um, You could do the uh, deleting a thousand photos in eight days challenge.
1: Yeah, I was 11 like,
2: days. 11 days. Thank you. Yeah, I was like doing the math on that. I'm like, I was at a thousand photos in 11 days. But it it, it, it checks out, man, you, just so <laughs> you know. So you start off like on day one, one photo, uh-huh. day two, two photos, day three, four photos, uh-huh. day five, eight photos. So you're doubling the photos each day. Uh-huh. starts so out really simple where you kind of build that momentum. And then by day 11 you know, you're getting rid of hundreds of photos. If you keep it going, it's billions of photos. <laughs> right, yeah. By the Just, end of the month. <laughs> by the end of the month, you've deleted your whole archive,
1: yeah. <laughs> you've deleted the whole world, basically.
2: Right. But, but you know, but that that 11-day challenge is not going to be as compelling if you don't have that why clarified. Mm-hmm. So find find the, the compelling thing that moves you to set some of these boundaries up and then choose the boundaries and got to stick to them. And, you know, I'm not perfect with my boundaries, but, um, I'm certainly a lot closer to, um, living the life I want to live with these boundaries kind of helping me. Sometimes I cross them and, um, it's a, it's a signifier of, Oh, don't cross that boundary. You've got to, you've got to stay within these lines. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Speaking of boundaries, one of the areas of digital clutter that is most problematic is the glowing screen clutter that's in our lives. It's not the actual files on your computer, your phone, etc. It is the fact that all of these glowing screens are following you everywhere. I quoted from Ronnie Chang's uh, Netflix stand-up comedy special in our last book, Love People Use Things. And what he said is, it feels to me like every night in America is a competition to see how many screens I can get between the wall and myself. Yeah. Yeah. It starts off with the big screen TV on your wall, and then you have your laptop there on your lap, mm-hmm. and then you have your iPad right next to it, and your iPhone, and you look up and it's your Apple Watch, and they're all dinging and all these notifications, right? And so there's some practical things with the glowing screens to keep them from interrupting you. The biggest one for me is turning off all notifications, obviously. I also have this feature where I turn on grayscale on my phone and also my laptop. so things become less compelling immediately. Yeah. I don't feel draw as drawn to Instagram if everything's in black and white, it's mono um, monocolored, right? It's just it's just grayscale essentially. The whole thing is, oh, I, pull, I pick it up and I'm like, I don't really feel the same compulsion anymore. <gasps> Wait a minute. This is just impulse. What am I doing? Ryan, have you ever picked up your phone and then
2: gone straight to where you didn't want to go? <laughs> oh, dude, all the time. All and, the time. And what happens? Oh, I get lost in whatever it is I get lost in. Usually it's Instagram. Mm -hmm. And uh, I totally forget why I picked up my phone in the first place. I had had to call 911. I totally forgot. Until I set it down and I'm like, oh, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) I should have been dialing the
1: emergency service. (laughs) Yeah. And then also glowing screens that are throughout the home. I do a few things here. If you saw the video that we did about our, we bought our first TV in 12 years, but we have some rules around that so that it doesn't allow us to get lost in the glowing screen. Mm -hmm. The same is true with, I don't let the phone follow me around the house. We have the entryway rules. So as soon as I walk in the home, I set it there at the entryway, plug it in, and it's still there like a home phone. If I ever need to access it, it's right there. And I can go check a text message, answer a phone call, make an outbound phone call. But the interruptions... And the impulse don't follow me around the home.
4: Mm.
1: Same with the bedroom. I don't have a TV in the bedroom because I would be compelled to watch it. And by removing it from the bedroom, we reserve the bed for the two things that are the bed is meant for, which mm. is sleeping and snuggling. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> sleeping, <laughs> snuggling, and fort building. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes,
1: indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast, so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like site has a question for
7: us. If hoarding and being unable to let go of things is a mental illness, can an obsession with letting go also be considered a mental illness?
1: A lot of people get really tied up with this whole mental illness thing. Yeah. As though it's a bad thing. And so we've talked about this on a few of the most recent episodes, starting with the ClutterCore episode. And what I was talking about there, Ryan, before we get into our 60-second pithy answers, I was simply trying to illustrate a fact that hoarding is described by the Mayo Clinic, by NHS, by the Cleveland Clinic as a mental disorder. That's not a good thing or a bad thing. It is an illness. It is a mental illness, you had a cold a couple of weeks ago, Ryan? Mm-hmm. You were ill. That's not a bad thing. I'm not saying you're a bad person. You did something immoral. Well, he might have done something immoral to get that cold. Never. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is you had an illness. If anything, it's to be compassionate for someone else who has some sort of illness. Ryan and I were hoarders. Back in our corporate days, we were not intentional about the things we brought into our lives. We were not intentional about the things we held on to. In fact, we cling tightly to those things. I do want to answer the question head on though. So give me 60 seconds, Professor Sean. Letting go happens when the clinging ceases. Now, Hippocite here says, hey, you know what? You're saying that hoarding is a mental illness, but what if letting go Is that also a mental illness? And I would say no, letting go by itself is not a mental illness, but the inability to hold on to anything is called Spartanism. And that is the inverse of hoarding. They both exist on the OCD spectrum. It is an illness. It doesn't mean someone is bad for having that illness. If anything, I want to have compassion for anyone who has an illness. I don't want to judge them and say, how dare you have this illness? How dare you cling to these things? Or how dare you keep letting go with your Spartanism? No, I want to get curious about it. I want to understand. Oh, tell me more about that Ill- illness. Tell me more about how you're struggling. Tell me why you can't let go.
2: Mm. All right. Give me 60 seconds. Oh man, you were right on. (laughs) Nice. All right, here we go. Uh, Labels are helpful when they clarify, harmful when they shape your identity. So it's very helpful to have a label. This is a microphone. This is a shirt. If I try to be a shirt, my life is going to be very different, but the label of a shirt helps me identify something. So when it comes to minimalism, it's great to have this label that helps you identify something, but When the label defines who you are as a person, like that's where it really starts to uh, be a detriment. So yes, letting go of too many things is a mental illness. That's Spartanism. Holding on to too many things, an absorbent amount of things, that is also a mental illness. It's called hoarding. Minimalism kind of helps us find that middle ground. And that's, that's what labels should do. They should guide you, not compel you. I don't know. They should. I don't. I don't know. They they should guide you, not not be your identity. You are a shirt. Thanks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. So drop your questions and comments in the chat. But first, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Did you know that the minimalists have a hundred free local meetup groups? Technically, a hundred and one because we also have an online city. If None of these groups are around you. So, nine years ago, Ryan, we went all over the world, eight different countries, a hundred different cities, and we had this long tour in each city. We eventually left behind a meetup group in every city. So, you could connect yeah. with open-minded, dogma-free people who are also decluttering their lives in various ways. It can be material clutter. It could be career clutter, digital clutter, as we've talked about. But, We have uh, 100 different groups. You can head on over to minimalist.org. You find the city that's closest to you. They meet in person regularly, or you go to the online city. And then, Ryan, we have uh, a few, you have like themes each month that people are talking about. You want to talk about some of the themes coming up uh, over the next few months?
2: Yeah, so uh, we started doing this last year. We just came up with different topics for each month to kind of give people an idea of what um, they're going to get a taste of when they show up to these, these minimalist.org meetup groups. So uh, March, we've got sentimental items. In April, we've got relationship clutter. In May, we've got environmental clutter. So what these communities really are about is uh, it's about supporting one another. It's about um, giving some time and attention to things uh, that matter. And I, I would love to say that they are you know like-minded, but there's, it's not like-minded, but it's definitely open-minded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these, this is a result of people asking us, how how can we hang out with with other minimalists? How can we hang out with other people? And we didn't have an answer to that. But now we have an answer. So if you want to go hang out with some open minded people who are practicing minimalism in their lives, then go over to minimalist.org and check out if there's a meetup
1: near you. And a lot of aspiring minimalists as well. Mm. And so it often starts with the, topic of discussion for that month. Maybe like in April, you're talking about relationship clutter. And that's where it starts. But all of a sudden, you start to uncover all these other areas of clutter. My relationship clutter has led me to buy things I don't actually want. So it's creating more material clutter. And that material clutter is now creating financial clutter. And you start following all of these, these different paths. And so it starts with some theme, some topic. But that is just the signpost through which you will travel to whatever the destination is. And you'll travel there together. Minimalist.org to find a city near you. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream. Patron, shout out to you. Thank you for keeping the podcast and uh, YouTube channel 100% advertisement free. What do you got for us, Malabama?
7: We have a bunch of questions. We'll start with one from Kat. Is cheating? Is it cheating to play the minimalism game in February? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's funny because we get asked a lot about is it cheating if I count each paperclip individually is it <laughs> is it cheating yeah I, you know here's the thing um that is that is an idea for you to use how you want um there's no way to cheat if you're cheating anyone you're cheating yourself uh-huh. so the question cat is does it feel like you're cheating yourself if you're doing it in February because you are uh you know g- getting three days less of the minimalism game but you know, if you want our blessing to do it in February, then cat you have our blessing.
1: Which, yeah. Yeah. It's a shortcut. It's it's easy mode for the game. So the thirty-day minimalism game, you can download the free calendar, by the way, over at the minimalists.com slash game. And if you want to do it over 28 days, that's fine. If you want to do over 31 days, we've had people who keep going day 33, day 34, day 35. And it starts off really easy because it gets you that momentum you need to start letting go. And so it's about getting rid of one thing on day one to give you that momentum for day two is two things, then three things on the third day, four things on the fourth day, so forth and so on. Starts off pretty easy, but it gets more difficult as the month progresses. I will say it's only cheating, though, if you're also tidying up with Marie Kondo
2: at the same time. (laughs) Did you see the latest about Marie Kondo? (laughs) Have you seen it? Well, tell me. Should I not talk about it? Um, No, she uh, she basically, you know, kind of confessed that now I think she has a kid now. Oh wait, he missed last week's podcast episode. Oh, so you talked about this on last yeah, week? Yeah, we okay. did a
1: whole we did a whole uh, on the private podcast. Right. We did a whole yeah. more about less segment. Oh, called <laughs> Marie Kondo is messy, but it was her who's saying
2: she's messy. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we won't rehash it.
1: We'll check back in with the live stream here in a bit. But first, Malabama, what you got for us?
7: Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners.
0: My name is Luke Pearson, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, I had a comment about fitness. I'm reading a book. It's called Starting Strength. It's a very simple way to exercise for people who go to the gym. Um, it's often confusing. People who like to go to the gym, it's often hard to minimalize your fitness routine. So I started to read this book, and it's simple. It may not be, it may not be easy, but it is very simple. Um, and it, it's implemented in a lot of things in my life. My back is more strong. Um, just everything about me is stronger don't really care about what I look like, but I feel stronger and I feel healthy. Um, You know, and I just enjoy working out. But it it was so difficult before, but now reading this book, Starting Strength by Mark Ripito. Just hope that helps. Definitely, if you go to the gym a lot, it will simplify your life. Hey, Josh
5: and Ryan. This is Stephanie from San Antonio. Joshua, I believe, had... Recommended a book by my new favorite author, Andy Andrews, and it was called The Traveler's Gift. And that book is, so, it's like the Bible, uh, another Bible without the religion. It think it tells you exactly what to do with your life, exactly what you're not doing, and basically tells you that it's all on you. And that's a really good book that I recommend to my friends. And I started reading numerous books of Andy Andrews. The Noticer is another one that's really good. I think a lot of people need to read it. It's about perception, about seeing things beyond your own point of view. That one was really good. I also, I don't know if you guys recommended this or if I just happened to stumble upon it, but there's a book called Miracle Morning by Hal... Uh, I can't think of his last name, but his first name is Hal. And it is a step-by-step, step, you know, get-out-of-your-funk process that you start your mornings at 5, 5 a.m. You do journaling, you do reading, you do exercising, you run your errands. And it's just uh, it's a way to change, uh, another way to change your life. And they actually have a community on Facebook. Um, called the Miracle Morning Community, and there's people from all over the world.
1: Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Patrons, thank you so much for being here. We took a quick break for some pandiculation. <laughs> a little bio break. What is this $5 word? <laughs> pandiculation. It's like the, the stretch, like, uh, like when you get in the morning, like, ah, uh, you pandiculate. You can write that down.
2: <laughs> You're getting like $50 worth of words today. We're calling y'all.
1: that, we're calling that uh, tossing Ryan Nicodemus's word salad. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that's, our, that's our
2: shortest segment of the day. Uh, I'll never forget, I used the word uh, banal uh-huh. um, like way back when we were in the corporate days. And it was in front of you and Carrie. Uh-huh. And Carrie was like, what did you say? I said, banal. She's like, that's not a word. <laughs> I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> she was an English teacher. I know. I'm like, you're oh an my. English teacher, Gary. But no, she
1: like looked anyway. It was funny. Yeah. Well, she wasn't a, uh, a lexicographer. so Right. That's true. That's true. But yeah, saying that's not a word is like, yeah, m- most words that you hear probably are words. Yeah. I, when Sean and I teach the How to Write Better writing class. So We've been doing these videos for YouTube. And um, it's a there's this old adage that the teacher learns more than the students. Mm-hmm. I think that's the main reason that I do how to write better is a lot of people learn a lot from me, but I'm learning just as much as I'm teaching these lessons. Yeah. Because like I forgot the difference between a linking verb and an auxiliary verb. And as I get to give a lesson about that, as banal as it might be, mm-hmm. right, it it helps me better understand, which then permeates into my everyday writing. Right, yeah. I got some talk aboutables for you. The first thing I wanted to talk about is Ella has her first dance this month. Oh, and it's like this Valentine's Day dance, and her and her boyfriend's going. They're going to go together. Oh, and, and I took her to the mall to get a dress because she had no like dress she could wear. But she actually had a dress to wear, but it was like way too small on her because she's damn near six feet tall. Just growing was, like, a foot a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we we're walking through the mall and we walked past, it was an outdoor mall in Ventura County and we walked past Forever 21 mm-hmm. and in the window, there's a picture of Kurt Cobain on a t-shirt. And i am just, when I say advertisements suck, this isn't an advertisement, obviously, mm-hmm. but it has the same spirit of suckiness. Mm. And what I mean by that is there's no way that Kurt Cobain ever wanted his picture on a t-shirt in a storefront at a shopping mall. Yeah, Everything that he and his music and his demeanor and his essence stood for were the antithesis of Kurt Cobain's face on a t-shirt in
2: Forever 21. That is insane. Yeah, he would be very angry. If he was alive today, yeah, knowing that, yeah, I saw this interview he did, and someone was asking him about ticket prices, and because uh, they they tried to keep their shows relatively affordable, mm-hmm. you know, for the '90s, I you know, it was like forty bucks for a ticket or something. Um, someone asked him, he they were like, "What do you think about Madonna charging eighty dollars a ticket?" And He was like, "Madonna charges eighty dollars a ticket." That's cra- why would she do that to her fans? Yeah, uh, like yeah, it was a uh, it was it's an interesting little snippet of this interview. If, if you are bored and will look it up, look it up on YouTube, <laughs> no, it's it is it is crazy, man. Uh, that is we just commodify anything that we can. Yeah, it's like when I hear,
1: I, I doubt that any of his music is in a commercial, but if it was, I'd be just as startled, right? Yeah, if all of a sudden I hear Teen Spirit on a bounty commercial
2: yeah or like even like as much as i like you know toyotas but you're not a toyota commercial it's gonna yeah it's it's just not gonna not gonna sit well yeah it's
1: the commodification of everything
2: Mm -hmm. and we take art and
1: by the way i'm not against the music being used like in beautiful movies and other places it can Mm -hmm. accentuate a mood as long as the artist that's what they want but you just know that Kurt Cobain did not want what the Kurt Cobain estate is doing with his face. Yeah. yeah. And it's just unfortunate. We've decided that we can commodify everything. But if you're wearing the Kurt Cobain t-shirt from Forever 21, know that you're doing the exact opposite of
2: what the guy wanted who's actually on your shirt.
1: Yeah, It would have been offensive to him.
2: You know, the other side of that coin, I'm wondering, because like you went to see Nirvana, there's a merch booth and, you know, you're going to be able to buy Nirvana merch. Sure. Yeah. I'm
1: not saying... It, it, but Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's fine to buy merch from a band who creates artistic merch. Yes. I can't imagine a world in which Kurt Cobain would have put his face on a t-shirt and said, wear me to your party. Or
2: hundred percent. hundred percent. There is something about it being at Forever 21 that is just, it feels dirty.
1: Yeah, 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 and it's not so. It's not like it's Kurt Cobain who was selling a Nirvana T-shirt, which is something he created, mm-hmm. or Kanye West or whomever selling a shirt that they've designed, created, made look beautiful. It's a piece of art. No, it's taking someone's likeness or image and then commodifying it. That I have a problem with that because you <laughs> know, I and the only reason I have a problem with it. It was because I know he would have had a problem with it.
2: I'm totally getting a shirt with your face on it. <laughs> you could just borrow your wife's. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a mask that I make her wear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on that note, I guess I better move over to the next talk about it. Yeah, I probably should. <clears throat> mm. So, I saw this video, our friends from the Ramsey show, think rachel cruz was filling in for dave and they played this video and reacted to it so i wanted to also play because it startled me and i've shown it to a bunch of people now you haven't seen it yet okay and it truly startled me it was originally like this tiktok trend we're going to watch it and then you and i will react professor sean go Go ahead. ahead let's do it
6: hey sir what is your car payment uh, mine is
4: 1325
6: And what kind of vehicle is that? It's
4: a 22 Ford Raptor.
6: Okay. You have another payment? I
4: do, actually. My wife's, hers is 1000
2: It's a 22 Ford Expedition. Perfect.
6: Hey, ma'am. What is your car payment? 1386 And what kind of car requires a $1,386 payment?
7: A 2022 Grand Wagoneer Series 3.
6: Perfect. Hey, sir, what is your car payment? I got a couple of them, but the first one's fourteen forty-five. What kind of car is that? That's a new GMC Sierra 2500 Denali. What's the other one? Uh, it's a wide-body CTSV That's 11 61 Nice payment. Hey, sir, what is your car payment? <laughs> <laughs> Bro, what's your car
4: payment? And what kind of car are you driving? You know, honestly, I was about to
6: make my car payment. I'll even show you. It's kind of funny everybody's talking about high payments. Look at that number right there. (laughs) That's my car payment. Damn. 2021 wide-body Hellcat Charger. Ryan, we have to talk
1: about this. Wow. Uh, So, here's the thing. Whenever you need something it begins to control you. Mhm. And when i need that new car, now all of a sudden it controls me in various ways. My job i'm now tethered to in order to pay for the car to take me to the job so i can pay for the car that takes me to the job. Yeah.
2: Isn't it funny how we like tell ourselves, well, at least i'll enjoy my ride to work. And like that's how we justify it. I'm gonna buy this really nice that's how I did it at least. I wanna buy this really nice ride so I can at least enjoy the car time that I spent. And the more promotions I got in that company, the more I had to be on the road. Hmm. So I could just justify it even more. Yes. Yeah, no, but it is a it is a weird little cycle when you lay it out how you just did. It yeah. When
1: I had a luxury car back in the Oddies, I had several. Couple Lexuses, a Land Rover. None of the payments were nearly as high as these. Yeah, that's, I was
2: shocked. Over a thousand bucks is crazy.
1: And so, in the one guy in the red shirt, he was spending $2,500 a month on two separate cars. That's rent. That's
2: a, yeah. a really big house mortgage, like in the Midwest. Like, it's, that's crazy.
1: And so, you have to also couple that with, all the gas mm-hmm. that goes into those vehicles, the insurance payments, the gap insurance, the interest rate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. There's so much money we're spending on these things that then become a prison. Now, I'm sure all of their cars are nicer than my nine or ten year old Toyota, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, you know what is nicer than all of that? The freedom that I don't have a single car payment. I don't have to worry about constantly going to a job to pay for the car to take me to the job. And so this isn't a judgment of these people. This is a judgment of a system that is fundamentally broken. If I have a car payment, it means I couldn't afford the car in the first place. Mm -hmm. However, I could have afforded A beater. I could have driven a $500 car, a $1,000 car, a $2,000 car. I could have saved up for it at some point and then gotten the car that will take me to work. And then I can upgrade from there if I so choose. But needing the upgrade, now I'm in the control of the financiers, of the car dealership, of the salesperson. They control my life. The car controls my life. The debt controls my life. And it's overwhelming.
7: Oh, Professor Sean, yeah. This TikTok was by a car dealership. What do you think they were trying to achieve? Yeah, I'd love to know the purpose of this.
1: I, I can tell you exactly what they're trying to achieve. Look, everyday normal people, this is just normal. Right. 1300 bucks, $1,400 for a car payment. Look, it's normal now. So come on down to Jim Bob's Chevrolet or whatever they're driving. Yeah. And now you can be normal too. You can, and by the way, these weren't even impressive cars. It wasn't like it was a Lamborghini. Right. Not that that would impress me at all. I mean, the Hellcat's pretty cool, but still. I don't even know what that is. Is that a tractor?
2: <laughs> it's uh... a... <laughs> Suffice it to say, I'm unimpressed. Let's just say it is a tractor. It's a, it's a, it's a muscle car, basically. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, there's
1: something to TikTok, Danny. You can figure it out.
2: No, that is that's that's unbelievable that like it's normalized and that's is what they're trying to do. They're trying to normalize over a thousand dollar a month car payment. Mm -hmm. And I remember I wanted to buy a Lexus um oh, I forget what that's how awesome it was. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, one of their like special models makes. And when I went to the dealership, the payment was six hundred bucks a month. And I just wasn't willing to do it. And and uh Yeah, I I couldn't imagine saying yes to a $1,000 a month car payment. Well, the best thing you can do when it comes to your car, pay cash. Because Mm -hmm. here's the thing, is that A, it makes you save over a period of time. So Mariah and I, we had the 2004 Toyota Corolla, which by the way, when I got that, um, it was right when I got laid off from work Mm -hmm. and I had to get rid of my car payment because I was like, oh, like now I don't have an income, so you know, I'm going to get rid of as much debt as possible. Mm -hmm. So I sold my car, got rid of that car payment. And I'll tell you, like that 2004 Toyota Corolla, like I enjoyed that way more than the fancy car I had because of the freedom of not having to pay a monthly car payment. And man, we went on tour in that thing. Mm -hmm. And it was great.
1: We went on a bunch of tours in that We
2: went on a bunch of tours in that thing. And so, you know, uh, getting back to paying cash for your car... Uh, you got to save up. So you got to get a little bit of discipline. But the thing is, is when when you save up 10, 15, $20,000, you know, Mariah and I had saved up over, you know, five, six, seven, eight years to to get a to get the car that we have now. Mm -hmm. And it's painful to Mm -hmm. drop that much cash. And what that does, though, is it prevents me from it prevented me from you know, uh, 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 trying to get a nicer, better car. I always talk about the Tesla. Mm -hmm. And I remember like at a certain point I went to you, I'm like, I'm just going to do it, man. I'm going to like, I'm going to dump all my stocks and I'm just going to like pay cash for the Tesla. And you're like, really? You want to spend that much on a car?
4: Yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, thank God I've got you to talk some sense, sense into me sometimes, whether I listen or not, but But it uh, wasn't, you shouldn't do that. It was a
1: true curiosity Mm -hmm. of, wow, you're really going to pay that much for a car? Yeah. Not that it's wrong. And by the way, someone who makes millions of dollars can afford any of those vehicles and they can pay cash for them and it's not a problem. But think about some of these car payments, Ryan. If a car is $1,516, that's the last car there, Mm $1,516, I suspect that person, if they had just $80,000 $80,000 in the bank, they wouldn't say, I'm going to give this $80,000 for this car. Exactly. And if you wouldn't do that, then I also wouldn't finance it.
2: Yeah. Because love- you're going to spend way more than eighty dollars after you finance it. Oh, yeah. I love how every single person knew the exact dollar amount. And they know that exact dollar amount because it's hitting them every single month. Yeah, it's just like when
1: someone's in prison, you ask them how much time they have left. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I have three years, four months, 18 days. Mm. That's what a car payment is like. Yeah. Mm. We're going to skip TK's tweet of the week this week because TK isn't here, but he'll be back next week and we'll have this tweet. It's called guilt is useless. Maybe we can argue about that. Mm. I don't know what position I'm going to take. I just know TK will take the opposite position. (laughs) (laughs) We have a segment here we call amass it or trash it. We also have one called Obsolete Objects. We have Impulse Purchases. You can send us any of those podcasts at theminimalists.com. Try to include a photo as well. This week on Amass It or Trash It, we have this image, which you can see if you're watching the video version on the screen. This one is from Sheila. Malibam, you want to read what she wrote in?
7: She wrote, I want to let go of my shot glass collection. I don't even do shots anymore. (laughs) Most of these were gifted and doubt anyone would find value in these. Shot, Hmm. shot, shots.
2: Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like, it makes sense that uh, people would get her shot glasses as gifts. Because if I went to Sheila's home and saw this shot glass collection, I would be like, oh, Sheila really likes shot glasses. I am going to, next time I see a shot glass, I'm going to pick it up for So, um, yeah, I could see where, yeah, you probably more than half of those were gifts because you were displaying shot glasses and people want to make you happy and add value to your life. And they thought that shot glasses would add value to your life. That's why
1: I always used to get socks for Ryan, because every time I went to his bedroom, there were just socks all over the floor. And so I was like, <laughs> he must be a sock collector. Exactly. Yes. Man, I love socks. <laughs> well,
4: That's it's, great. Uh, That's Ryan, great. you bring up
1: such a great point is you, you, the, the life that you display... Others will assume that is what brings you great joy, contentment. It amplifies your freedom in some way. But what you're telling me is, no, this is just getting in the way. I don't even use these and I don't find them to be particularly beautiful. If you did, if you're like, oh, this is my art. This is my art case. I've been collecting these and I really get great joy every time I walk past it. Wow. Then I'd say amass it. But I'm not going to tell you to trash it. I'm going to tell you to smash it
2: (laughs) and by smash it he means donate
1: how fun would it be to just take a baseball
2: bat to the whole case film it for tiktok and you'll go viral (laughs) so this is going to be the uh now it's the amass it trash it or smash it (laughs) segment oh man yeah i mean clearly if they're not adding value yeah there's no reason to hang on to it um You could totally donate that. There's someone out there, I'm sure, who would love to display these shot glasses. But yeah, if you're not finding beauty in it, if it's not augmenting your life in a positive way, if it's causing more stress than it is uh, happiness or contentment or whatever it is, if it's causing you more negative feelings, then uh, yeah, I would go ahead. smash Smash it it. (laughs) that's our vote let's move on to our sucky ad
1: segment you can send your sucky ads to podcast at minimalists.com. actually ryan sent this one in to the whole group here at the studio and i thought this was a dystopian joke me too i thought it was like an onion article do we have uh the article itself pulled up Alabama. I sure do. So can you read this to us because it doesn't feel real to me.
7: <laughs> sure. That's titled Sony Patent Would Have You Yell at Your TV to Skip Commercials by Lance uh ooh, Lance Ulanov. Just scream, see Alice. Imagine being trapped inside commercial hell where the only escape is your voice. Who would cook up such a thing? According to a tweet that's been viewed over 18 million times, this was Sony's brilliant idea. I almost did a spit take when the tweet rolled onto my feed. It's not a full patent, just an illustration from one that shows someone sitting on a couch watching a TV uh, a TV show in which one person is shooting someone else. Weird to have such unnecessary violence in a patent. A McDonald's commercial represented naturally by a giant hamburger appears on screen with the message, Say McDonald's to end commercial. The TV watcher enthusiastically leaps to his feet and yells, McDonald's! And then it's back to the on-screen violence. See, we should do
1: it. So last week, you weren't here, Ryan, mm-hmm. and I was making fun of Arby's commercials. It was an Arby's commercial where the reason I was making fun of it is some of my favorite podcasters, like Ryan Rossillo or Bill Simmons, when I listen to their basketball podcast, they have to do a break. And it's not just interrupted with a commercial. It's not like it's a professionally produced McDonald's or Arby's commercial. Mm. They also have to do the ad read. Mm. And so you hear Ryan Rossillo, the super like manly man doing football and basketball podcast. And he has to say the tagline for Arby's, which is, I've got the meats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And someone's paying him. To genuinely say, "I've got the meats!" This is one step further. Mm. Imagine if the Arbys commercial in order to skip it, you had to jump up and yell, "I've got the meats!" <laughs> uh, yeah, And so I hate this. Yeah, yeah. And but- the reason I hate it is it mimics convenience. Oh, think how easy it would be. But now I have to yell at the advertisement. What does that say about the ads? We hate advertisements so much. We're willing to yell and get angry at the ad in order to make it go away.
2: Yeah. No, this is, when I saw it, I thought, yeah, what you thought about it being like some kind of dystopian future. Well, it's it's kind of brilliant for all the wrong reasons because yes, it's, it's uh, making it more convenient. You don't have to sit through a minute of a commercial or however long commercials are. Um, You can just get through it right away. But you are being indoctrinated Mm -hmm. by using this feature. Mm -hmm. If you're yelling it, and you're not going to just yell McDonald's once during that program. yeah, You're going to be yelling it over and over and over. And it is going to be seeping into your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And it is programming you. And and pretty soon, it's not going to just be yell
1: McDonald's. It's going to be yell quarter pounder with cheese. Right. And now you are programming yourself through your language. One of the ways... That is easiest to program someone is if you can get them to repeat an incantation. To incant. This is what cults do, by the mm. way. They create incantations that then indoctrinate you, endear you to the cult. Aren't we just doing that with the double quarter pounder of cheese or say Whopper three times
2: in order to get this off the screen? I really want a hamburger right now. <laughs>
7: That's the point. That's the point. Oh, it feels so gross.
2: Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i saying that jokingly, but when you said quarter pounder with cheese I and mean, like, it's getting close to lunchtime, Uh-huh. I'm like, a hamburger does sound good. Right. Yeah. It's, there you go. It's wild. And if you ha- keep
1: saying it over and over and over,
4: mm-hmm.
1: oh, think about where you're going for lunch. You know, that's what I want. Yeah, this is like some evil genius stuff that Sony came up with. <laughs> Let's move on to the Photo Friday home tour. On Friday, I sent you two photos to your inbox if you subscribe to the video version of the private podcast. I got to say this. This first one here that Jordan's going to put up here on the screen above my left shoulder is titled She Shed. So we ordered a shed from overstock.com. And guess what, Ryan?
2: We finally got rid of our storage units. Amazing. (laughs) It looks that looks like it's aesthetically pleasing. I mean, no storage shed would be better, but as far mm. as storage sheds go, like uh, that's pretty aesthetically pleasing, man.
1: If it were up to me, we wouldn't have a storage shed right. at all. The only thing I keep in there is a large 24-inch broom that I use to sweep the patio regularly, but before we had the shed, I just leaned it against <laughs> the side of the house where no one would see it, mm. and it was an aesthetically pleasing broom, obviously, mm. cuz I I uh, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll put a link to the specific broom that I got. If you're looking for an aesthetically <laughs> pleasing broom, I'll do this for you just this one time. We'll put it in the show notes podcast or theminimalist.com slash podcast. Although you probably don't need a new broom. And so don't just go out and impulse buy a broom because I have yeah. this broom. Dude, it doesn't make
2: you any cooler. It makes me cooler, but it right. doesn't make you any cooler. <laughs> no, I, again, like I appreciate your attention to detail when it comes to aesthetics. Like I uh, I need a new kettle. My kettle is finally like breaking down. It's on its last leg. And I almost texted the other day like, hey, what was that kettle that you have? Because it's, it's a beautiful looking kettle and it serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, Same thing with the shed. Beautiful shed, serves a purpose. Awesome, man. So you got rid of your storage unit now. all the camping gear's in there. Yeah, so
1: the storage unit was Bex's storage unit. I say ours because I contributed to the monthly payment of it. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, what we decided is we wanted to have a shed to keep the camping gear that Bex has. And there are a few other yard things that Bex uses for gardening and trees and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But up to me, it would just all be giant patio in the backyard. <laughs> Pour the concrete already.
2: Oh my goodness. And you would sweep it like every day. Yeah. Yeah. Twice <laughs> a day, every day. Yep. The more you sweep, the more you feel clean on the inside, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: It was my own illness. Thank you. Uh, And uh, so this is a picture of her. She shed. Uh, I have uh, my own man
2: cave. Is, kidding. She, is she shed? Is that like an actual term or is it she shed? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah, it, is. It, okay. it
7: is. I actually expected this to be something totally different because what I understand she shed to be is a backyard shed that's used as a retreat. Like yeah. the fem, the feminine equivalent of a man cave. Right.
1: That, that's oh. why I was joking there because I don't have a man cave. She doesn't actually have a she
2: shed. This is her shed. Gotcha. A full full oh, well, of her, her things. Got it. <laughs> and, uh, they're, 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 so when you go in there, there's not like just like Posters of hot men with muscles and their shirts off and Speedos. See, that's
7: what I was expecting. <laughs> it's just all
2: pictures of me posing.
1: <laughs> Bex is really into me. Thank you, Bex.
7: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but we finally got rid of the storage locker. I want to talk about why real quick, because we were paying a monthly fee every month. It was way cheaper than this, this shed. When We had to put the shed together. It shows up in two giant, very heavy boxes. Mm. And, and then you have to build a foundation underneath it as well, like a gravel foundation. <laughs> And what you realize is that, yes, there are costs associated with storing our things, whether it is. So having that camping gear, you could have done one of three things. We could have kept it in our bedroom, just sitting there against the wall, taking up space. It would have actually become clutter at that point, even though it was useful. It would have been useful clutter because it was getting in my way. It's not useful to me. Mm -hmm. And so Bex is compassionate and understands. I don't want this to get in the way for Josh. And so we're going to temporarily put it into a storage locker where we pay 80 bucks a month until we've saved up enough money to not finance, but pay cash for this shed that we can put in the backyard. Mm. We put the the shed in the backyard. Now all of Bex's camping equipment is there in the backyard, in the shed, and also my broom, which is nice, (laughs) and all of her gardening equipment as well, because I don't want those things to get in the way. We bought a thing to get those things out of the way. However, I wanna be clear about this. I don't want to simply use it to hide organized clutter. These all have to be things that still conform to our way of living, which means the just-in-case rule, the 90-90 rule, the seasonality rule, the emergency items rule, these different rules that we've implemented in our own lives that may or may not work for you, com slash rulebook if you want to download the free rulebook for 16 Rules for Living with Less. And we still need to conform to that. It's getting the things out of the way and doing so in an aesthetically
2: pleasing way. There was another option with that camping gear. Could have just camped out in your backyard all the time and (laughs) put it to use.
1: (laughs) Ryan, I grew up poor, which was uh, sometimes the electricity would get turned out in the winter. And Mm. that's a lot like camping. yeah. Uh, it's glamping. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it was rather glamorous, you know, the cockroaches go scattering throughout the house. <sighs> oh, man. So nice. I've got a bonus uh. picture for you here as well. I called this one the Merchant of Repose. This one is Ella. And uh, this is the other side of our patio. We got these two chairs at the same time, also from Overstock.com, not an ad. Uh, but we there were some really, really nice chaise loungers that we wanted from like design within reach but they were way way too expensive we just couldn't afford it yeah and so we just searched for a few months and found one that was relatively comparable super simple and the first time i ordered these from overstock.com ironically they were out of stock (laughs) (laughs) and so i had to wait for them to come back into stock to actually order them but Ella here is out there. She's basking in the winter sun and she has some Play-Doh over her eyes.
4: Is that what that is? <laughs> well, yeah. you
1: know, girls got to treat yourself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. She just had a... Um... Oh, that's adorable. She had a me day. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, man. So we've been using the back patio a lot now. We um, And I, the reason that the shed works well is it hides the things that we don't want in plain sight. It's yeah. aesthetically pleasing, but we use the patio regularly, pretty much every day, unless it's pouring rain. So we have a grill out there. We have a table and chairs. It's pretty simple, as you can see from the previous photo. You want to go back a photo real quick, Jordan, you can see the other side of the, pa- the patio. Once again, that is just our dining table. And we've got that little spinny chair. It's called the spun chair, which you saw on a previous home tour photo as well. Yeah. And then we just have decomposed granite, which looks like sand basically. And, Ella will go out there for hours and play. She does all of her at-home learning, generally outside as well. So she'll do her reading and arithmetic and these different things that really help her learn. And I find that it's so much easier for her to do it when she's
2: outside, grounded and in the sun. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And it's, dude, that is very inviting. It is crazy. Like, I remember after my packing party, sitting down with my laptop and working, doing some work from home. Like having all that stuff out of the way, like that's where I started to be like, oh, maybe there is something to this whole like feng shui thing. Yeah. You know? Like I think feng shui gets a little like spiritual, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just the practical use of it. Um, I, yeah, totally saw it there with my laptop for the first time. And I, and same thing with your patio, man.
1: Nice work. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's important that form follows function and not the other way around. We're actually going to talk about that during the more about less segment. I've got an article from the New York Times about depression rooms and doom piles, why cleaning the clutter can feel impossible. We'll touch on that in a moment, but first, Malabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us?
7: We have a question here from Marcos. I'm trying to make my dream side hustle into a full-time job so I can be free from my nine to five. I'm already making some income from it, but it's overwhelming to have to work two jobs. If it's taking more than it's giving me, do I need to reevaluate my dream? How do I know when to push through or give up?
1: I don't want a side hustle. A side mm. hustle sounds frantic to me because hustling itself sounds frantic to me. Yeah. And so if I have a side passion, if I have a side interest, if I have a side compulsion or even a side devotion that can be wonderful. But having a side hustle means I have to frantically do this thing. I'm, I don't get to do it. I have to do it. Mm. And as soon as you feel like you have to do it, being able to do it full-time isn't going to make you more happy, more content. It's going to feel even more frantic because now I have to do it. I just have to do it even more. And maybe it's even paying me less money. When Ryan and I walked away from the corporate world, 90% pay reduction. Yeah. We were making less money. And if this was a hustle, it would have been so much worse because oh no I have to do this, I have to hustle. No. I get to do this and if I get to make some money from it as well, wonderful.
2: But if I don't, well, then that's okay as well. Yeah. The this question right away made me think about when we we did leave the corporate world. I was um b- but before we left though, I was uh working 60-70 sometimes 80 hours a week. Mm. I was going to uh, school. I was getting my degree and we were writing for theminimalists.com. It was not sustainable. Like it was way too much. So you could look at theminimalists.com as a side hustle, I guess, because I get the essence of what he's saying here. Um, I would highly recommend having an end date on it because that is what I did when I found myself just going to bed at night and like just realizing how many hours of the day I spent you know, trying to do a little bit of everything or a lot of bit of everything. And, uh, yeah, it's okay to, you know, take on more than, than, uh, than you normally could take on, but not if it's in perpetuity Mm -hmm. because eventually it will, it'll start to break down. So get an end date.
1: Yeah. Once you see that end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel. As soon as you see the light at the end of the tunnel, you are now compelled toward that light. You know that you have that end date there. Yeah. And it makes it not just tolerable, but encouraging. Like, oh, yes, I'm working towards something. Yeah. As opposed to constantly heaping more hustle onto your plate. Yeah. That is a surefire recipe for burnout.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's how I got through college. Like, I really wanted to quit my beginning of my senior year. And um, I had a friend kind of give me a little pep talk about just pushing through and like, why do you want to get your degree? And, you know, hindsight, it's like, I still would have went to college though. I mean, I, I do like having my degree in the sense that I am the only person in my whole family who ha- who has a, an undergrad. Um, I There might be one other family member, but regardless, it's a rarity. And for me to do that at 25 years old, I could see how my brothers were looking at me like, oh, like, if you want to do something, it's never too late to do it, you Mm -hmm. know? So Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad for that aspect of it. I'll never use that degree. That's okay. But once I got clear on what that light was for that college degree, like, yeah, I'd I'd hammer through that last year and nailed it. Yeah, it's okay now. But you didn't know at the time
1: you weren't going to continue to use it because Mm -hmm. in order to advance in the corporate world in which we were located at the time, many of the positions required that piece of paper. They were the barrier of entry. And so you knew that piece of paper had the potential to help you then. However, if you knew, I'm never going to use this degree and I'm starting college tomorrow, imagine how miserable that slog would be. I am doing this for nothing. Yeah. Now, in retrospect, you can look back and say, oh, it's a sunk cost. It wasn't for nothing. Mm-hmm. But if you knew right now, I'm never going to use this, I'm going to become certified for this thing that I never want to do, it's okay to let it go right now. Yeah. Don't wait four years to let it go. And many hours and much of your attention and many tens of thousands of dollars have been spent on this thing that is not going to serve you at all. Yeah,
7: mm-hmm.
1: I want to do one more question from the Patreon live stream before we get to this New York Times article.
7: Here's one from Brian. I don't usually justify my no's as long as I have a solid conviction on my why. However, I'm rethinking this now. Maybe a no but or no because in most cases could be demonstrating my genuine positive motive for my no's. What are your thoughts on walking this tightrope on deciding when to volunteer our why nots? So
1: when you're saying no, you're not being ungrateful. In fact, you are being loving. You're showing someone your boundary. You know what's unloving? If you don't show someone what your boundary yeah. is. And to and, say
2: yes out of obligation, mm, that's unloving
1: as well. Yes. Yeah. And so it's possible that you would have said yes to this a year ago, a month ago, or even a day ago, but the answer is different now. And it's because you've set up the boundary. And it would be unloving to not show them the boundary because now you're forcing someone else to guess where your ever-changing, ever-moving boundaries are. Mm -hmm. No wonder there's turmoil in the relationship. So no, you are not required to explain yourself. You are not required to explain your no. You can if you so choose, but I will say this. You aren't required to be grateful when someone else is being inconsiderate. If someone's trying to heap something onto you, you've explained your boundaries to them. You've explained to them that you have a no point. I can't accept this in my own life. It doesn't mean I don't accept you. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It simply means I have to say no so that yes, I can say yes to these things. Mm. But you don't have to be overly considerate to that person if they're being inconsiderate to you. It's easy to say no. It's much more difficult to stick to that no. Yeah, absolutely.
2: You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this and, you know, if Brian is comfortable just saying no and letting it be, um, th- that's okay. I think the reason why we need an explanation on how to say no is because a lot of the times it makes us feel bad for saying no. So we're trying to say no in a way that makes them feel like we still appreciate them and love them, Mm. um, which in turn makes us feel like, okay, like I didn't hurt their feelings. So I I don't have to stress out about hurting someone else's feelings. Um, Yeah. I mean, if I could just say no and drop it and not feel anything, like I I think I would just do that. I don't think I would have to explain it. It would be situational too, depending on the person, but um, there's nothing wrong with just saying no. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with saying no today to something you said
1: yes to yesterday. Mm. Or last year, or a decade ago, those yeses over time can transform into nos, and it's okay to say no. A no doesn't mean no forever; it just means no. Yeah. Let's read some more about less. The article I have here is called "Depression Rooms and Doom Piles: Why Clearing the Clutter Can Feel Impossible." It's from the New York Times. We'll put a link to this in the show notes so you can read the whole thing if you like over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. The article itself is by Dana G. Smith, and it's about the link between messiness and mental health is real. These low-lift tips for keeping a clean enough home will help. A camera pans around Abigail Mino's bedroom. The floor is mostly invisible, hidden by piles of clothes. Four large plastic baskets are stacked on top of each other, some filled with laundry, others with electronics. There are eight abandoned cups of coffee on the desk beside the table. On the floor lie two half-empty water bottles, a novelty bottle of tequila with a glass cactus inside and a pet food dispenser. Today, we're going to be cleaning my depression room, the 24-year-old YouTube star who posts videos as Abby Lucia tells the camera. I fear that the only way I will be able to make myself clean this room is if I film it. The term depression room is relatively new, popularized by videos on TikTok and YouTube that have accrued hundreds of millions of views but experts have long recognized the link between messiness and mental health. The clutter that can accumulate when people are experiencing a mental health crisis is neither a form of hoarding nor the result of laziness. The culprit is extreme fatigue, said Brad Schmidt, a distinguished research professor of psychology at Florida State University. People are Oftentimes, just so mentally and physically exhausted that they don't feel like they have the energy to take care of themselves or their surroundings, Dr. Schmidt said. They just don't have the capacity to engage with house cleaning and upkeep that pro- they probably once did. The the article goes on to say a messy home can also contribute to feelings of overwhelm, stress, and shame, making you feel worse than you already do. And while decluttering will not cure your depression, it can give you a mood boost. If you are struggling and it feels impossible to keep your surroundings tidy, here are a few tips on how to clean strategically to optimize your energy and your space. The first tip is focus on function, not aesthetics. For Casey Davis, one of her most popular strategies is, quote, five things tidying. The idea that there are only five things in any room, trash, dishes, laundry, things in with a place and things without a place. Those are the five things. Focusing on one category at a time keeps her from getting overwhelmed when it seems like there are a hundred different items that need to be put away. We would call that chunking, moving it down to these chunks. So a phone number is 10 digits, Mm -hmm. but we chunk it into three different groups and it makes it easier to manage than managing all 10 numbers at once. The second tip they have in the article here is make your home work better for you. The first step, Mrs. Brooks said, is to really pay attention to the items you're frequently cleaning up. Then find better places for them to live. What I talk to my clients about is a lot uh, about systems, she says. Figuring out why things are the way they are and where they are, why clutter is building up where it is, and then changing the design or organization around how people are actually using their home, and so yes, if I keep my all of my bed sheets in my living room, there, it's going to be clutter. I keep my bed sheets on the bed. If I keep my spatula in my kitchen or from I move it, if I remove it from the kitchen, if I keep my spatula in the bathroom, it's going to provide clutter. If I keep all of my bathroom bathroom accoutrements in the kitchen, those things are merely going to get in the way. But if everything mm. has an appropriate home, appropriate for you, wonderful. I keep my toothbrush in the kitchen and that's okay. But it doesn't mean that you should as well. I use it most in the kitchen. When I get up in the morning, I don't want to wake up my wife or my daughter. And so I head to the kitchen where I brush my teeth instead of the bedroom, which is right next to our, or the bathroom is right next to our bed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, stop the problem before it starts. Once your space is cleanish and relatively decluttered, try to make a few minutes take a few minutes each day to keep it that way. Mrs. Davis recommended setting a timer for five or 10 minutes and getting as much taken care of as you can during this time. Quote, I tell myself I don't have to finish this task, but I'm going to get up for eight minutes and do it, she said. I'm usually surprised at how much I can get done. I call this a setting the stage rule. Bex and I take five to 10 minutes every night and set the stage for the next morning. Set our next day up for success. Put away the dishes, the blankets, the random things that might be strewn throughout the house, whether it's toys or clothes or laundry that need to be put away. And just taking five to 10 minutes, no more than 10 minutes, putting it away so I can start off the next day with a
2: little bit more calm. Dude, the, the timer... Is brilliant because what happens when we have too much clutter or the house is too dirty, whatever it is? Um, I know for me, when I think about tackling that, it's it gets overwhelming because I don't know how long it's going to take me. And mm-hmm. you know, we always make things harder mm-hmm. in our minds than what they actually are. Mm-hmm. But if you can set that twenty minute timer, mm-hmm. all right, I'm going to spend twenty minutes like getting rid of some of this stuff in the bathroom and and cleaning it. And I don't have to finish it, but I got to give it, you know, my all for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And my guess is, is that you could probably clean a bathroom in less than 20 minutes. This really helps Ella with her homework
1: as well. The Mm. work that she has to do with arithmetic in particular, every day she does 18 pages of math problems. And if left to her own devices, she will sit at a table for over an hour and struggle through them. If I give her, however, a one-minute timer and chunk it into one-minute chunks for her, she can do three pages in one minute. Oh, wow. It takes her six minutes to do her homework, which would take more than 10 times that if she doesn't have the timer there to watch over her. And so we can do that in our own lives as well. I'm just going to take five minutes and do this one task. You'll be surprised what you can do. You can clean the bathroom, as you said. You can dust mop the floors. I give myself three minutes to dust mop the floors. And it's just three minutes. And I'm so much more contented by that because I've removed the excess clutter that gets in the way, the dust bunnies, the dirt, et cetera, in just three minutes. It feels overwhelming before we do it. But after doing it, we're so glad that we actually took those two or
2: three minutes to get that junk out of the way. Dude, I, it's funny that we haven't, you know, hit this hit this one home, man. This is like the first time I'm really seeing the benefit of the chunking. Because mm. people come to us all the time and they're asking, oh, my house is so messy. I just don't know where to start. And we start with that question, you know, how might your life be better with less? But then when it comes to the action, um, yeah, I mean, there are certain things that we talk about that we did. But yeah, if you're listening to this and you're overwhelmed with whatever clutter you have, digital uh, or physical whatever it is, like commit to 20 minutes a week, just set the timer and do what you can in 20 minutes, start there. And chances are, if like you really get on a roll, you'll go past that 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
7: There's something really interesting about this. I've noticed on YouTube is really popular. It's two different types of videos, clean with me and study with me. And I use the study with me. Mm. There's something about the feeling that somebody else is with you, even through a virtual screen makes you feel more fueled and more motivated to work or to clean or stay focused on a task. I think Robert Greene talks about that in Mastery. It's like mirror neurons and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's, it's amazing. If I do a simple search on YouTube, there's Clean With Me When Depressed, Sick, or Unmotivated, 399,000 views posted two months ago. And they they start there and they go up. So there's got to be something to that. But you just got to find that system that works, whether it's watching somebody else do what you want to do to fuel you or try the chunking.
1: Yeah. And it only sucks if there's a video at the beginning of that YouTube video.
2: (laughs) Oh, that'd be awful. (laughs) Dude, that's one of the best monthly purchases I make is the ad-free version. Of anything. Yes. The
1: ad-free version. Opt-in to that whenever I can. And if I can't afford the ad-free version of something, then maybe it's a sign that I want to opt out of the
2: whole thing altogether. Yeah, I was like watching this video. Um, I don't know, quantum physics or something. I, I like to watch things that I don't understand in hopes that I can understand them more. Um, quantum <laughs> physics is a very hard one for me to wrap my head around. Well, but you're, anyway, you're
1: the only one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we all get it. I know. <laughs> Um, no, it was like a fifteen minute video, and I saw all the little lines where the commercial breaks were. Mm-hmm. and I was just thinking, like, man, this video would be ruined if I had to stop. you know, within fifteen minutes, I think there were six I don't know how long the breaks were, but yeah, um ad free version, totally worth it. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Speaking of ad free,
1: I want to talk about something that's adding value to my life. This is our added value segment where we talk about sometimes. Music that's adding value to our lives. Sometimes a a TV show that's adding value to our lives. Sometimes it's a physical product that's adding value to our lives. And in fact, today I have all three. And so the music you hear in the background right now is from this band called Hammock. They show up on my Pandora station all the time, but they just had a new album come out. And my friend Nastasia sent. A link over, and I started listening to it on a morning walk the other day, and I realized it is the perfect morning walk music. Mm. Have you heard of Hammock? No, I haven't. The new album is called Love in the Void. The song you hear in the background right now is instrumental. It's called Procession. The album itself is sort of southern ambience music. It's ethereal. It is not singer-songwriter. It's not Gregorian chant. It's <laughs> not
2: I love how it's not country. It's uh, not heavy metal.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but it is. It's almost this blend of ambient music mm. that makes whatever task I'm doing. It amplifies the mood
2: of that moment. Isn't that funny how music can move you like that? Like that. Yeah. I mean, it really blows my mind. Like I was watching um, some like bluegrass uh, videos. Mm. And I, I mean, I haven't been moved. By music like that in a long time just because of the pure skill that goes into it. Mm-hmm. But it's crazy how music can really possess you and like totally alter your mood. That's a yeah, it's a special thing when you find music like that.
1: And it can magnify the mood that you're in as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be really careful. Our friend Laura, we had dinner with the other day, she recommended this album to us from the Feelings Parade. Yeah. And yeah. I put it on the first song, I felt like I was going to cry. Yeah. I'm driving home and it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm in L.A. County driving up to Ventura County. I'm like, I don't want to cry on my drive home tonight. Yeah. And so I really appreciated the music, but it wasn't the appropriate time. Right. I found this album from Hammock. It's almost exclusively instrumentals, but there's a little bit of vocals that are almost like an instrument within the music itself. You mm-hmm. know, when that works out really well. Yeah. And I find that in the mornings, like before the sun comes up, I can put this on and almost like... Eases me into the morning, into the day. And it's a companion for whatever else I'm trying to do as well, whether it's walking or writing. It can be on in the background and just be that companion with me. That's awesome. Bex and I have been watching this new show. We watched the first season of it. It's called The Old Man. And uh, Jeff Bridges
2: is in it. Oh, I love Bridges. And I met him. Did you really? Yeah, in Montana. Wow. Yeah, I got... uh, It's a friend of Mariah's family, uh, Monty Dolak, who's like a pretty famous artist in yeah. Montana. But him and his wife, uh, th- when they got married, yeah, Jeff Bridges was there because they got married in Paradise Valley at Chico Hot Springs. And a lot of celebrities live in Paradise Valley. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, apparently um, his wife went to school with Monty, went to high school with Monty. Anyway. Monty? Really, really nice guy. It was funny, like... All right, sorry, I'm totally taking us off the rails here. But I'm, I'm sitting there at the table and it was time for people to give speeches. And my back was turned towards the microphone and there really wasn't a convenient place for me to turn around and see what was going on. So I just kind of sat there and was like, you know, listening and clapping. And then all of a sudden I hear this dude um, get up and he's like very long winded. He's like, oh, I want everyone to sing with me. Please sing with me. And I'm like, who is this asshole? And I turn around and it's Jeff Bridges. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's allowed to act like this.
3: <laughs> well, he's in this new show and yeah, it's called about it. It's
1: called The Old Man. Mm-hmm. And the first episode, it's one of those not it's not like, oh yeah, you have to wait till you get three episodes in. Nope. First episode. Nice. You're like, what is happening? And oh, I I'm so into this. And then by the end of the first episode, it's like I have to watch the second episode. Mm. And it's so well written. Yes, it's really well acted. The casting is amazing. The cinematography is outstanding. But the thing that stood out to me is the dialogue is written as though it's from some sort of really brilliant novel. But the key is, and Professor Sean could tell you this, really great novels have great dialogue for novels. It rarely transfers to the big screen Mm. or the small screen to television in general or or vice versa like uh, um aaron sorkin like no one talks like that right Mm. right and so talking like the way they talk it feels like it's part of a novel but every line i mean i find myself rewinding the show how often do you have shows where you're like i just want to rewind that one line right not because i missed it Because I want to experience it again. They just painted a picture with the dialogue. Hmm. And I want to experience that line again. It's so profound. It's one of those things that I'm not going back and watching the whole season, although I might do that at some point. I'm going back and watching the last moment. It was so good and so compelling. And it drags me forward into the next scene and the next scene and the next episode.
2: That's awesome, man. I mean, you had me in Jeff Bridges. He's one of my favorite actors, but the beauty of it <laughs> sounds really good too it's called the old man i think it's on hulu although i'm not entirely
1: certain yeah i'm getting a thumbs up from jordan no more and mm-hmm. he knows he knows his stuff so last thing i have is a thing and it is called the air oasis and it's actually behind ryan right now you can't see it but we have one in the studio here which is especially great if you live in a city. I need it less now because I live up in Ohio and the air is really clean there. We still use one in our bedroom, though, to uh, filter out any particulates. But when I lived in Los Angeles or when I lived in Montana for those few months where the fires are going yeah. on, it would make yeah. a whole lot of sense to have some sort of air filter there. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a few environmental experts and several of them recommended this particular air
2: filter. Interesting.
1: And so they're not cheap. They're not crazy expensive either. What you find is quite often you buy one of these really expensive ones and it doesn't do as good of a job as a box fan with a cheap uh, air conditioner filter just taped to it. Yeah. In fact, that's probably, I, I talked to a few experts on this, it's one of the better things you can do is just take an air conditioner filter, tape it to a box fan, so it costs you 20 bucks to do this. Yeah. And now you at least have one The aesthetics are hideous, so I I couldn't (laughs) deal with that. But Air Oasis, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Not a sponsor of ours. That is one I use. You may not get any value from whatsoever. I've had several people ask me about air purifiers over the last year or so. Two or three people have asked. And so I know if a few people ask something repeatedly then people have that question. And so if you're looking for something to purify your air in your home, for whatever reason, Air Oasis is the
2: brand that we use in the studio and that I use at home as well. I used to think that the air filters were totally gimmicky. Like, just had no idea how much of a difference it makes in your home. I mean, so it was the the fires that got Mariah and I uh, buying an air filter. And when I noticed was the our dusting when we clean and dust like dude there's hardly any dust huge difference yeah crazy
1: yeah same with when i'm sweeping with the 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 dust mop Mm. if i don't have the like i'll leave the filter off for a few days way more dust yeah on the floor and dust bunnies and other weird things that are that i need to take care of yeah air oasis all right, y'all, that's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Alabama Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess. She's back, by the way. Shout out to Social Jess. She's yeah. back from her maternity leave. Woo. We love you, Jess. Heck yeah. Also, uh, Danny Unknown, who's here with us, making all those beautiful TikToks. Post-production, Peter, making the audio crystalline and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message... Let it be this, love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.